Well, good morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church. My parents are visiting for the weekend, so Sheree and I went on a date together, the first date that we have had in months, and it was, <laughs> it was glorious. But we got to speaking about a lot of things, about how ministry is going, and every once in a while I, I, I catch up with her and say, how is my preaching going? And she was quick and ready with an answer. Um, she said, well, why do you always start so flat? No, I, I pray for you and then you get going. Um, so I thought I'd maybe start with a little more energy this week for your benefit. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be reading together Isaiah chapter 6 from verse 1 to 13. This is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook and the, at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and I said woe is me for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, I know, I know that my words are, are not enough to describe what we see here to describe you I know already this preach will be too small and yet I'm grateful for your Holy Spirit who is here with us today we ask that you would do your work Amen in 1914 Europe had experienced decades and decades of relative peace, 
and prosperity. And yet, boiling under the surface of that, that peace was suspicion and fear. It had led to armament, to the forming of alliances. And in 1914, in the midst of this peace, the world was free-falling into chaos, into World War I. Edward Viscount Gray said on, the, on August 3rd, 1914, after having watched everything unfold, knowing the inevitability of what was to come, he said these words, he said, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. It was a defining moment in the history of the world. It would define a century to come, the most bloody century this world has ever seen. Well, it was into this same kind of defining moment that Isaiah receives his call in the history of God's people. He dates it quite uniquely, this call. He says it was the year that King Uzziah died. Now, his reign had been long and very prosperous. God had lavished success upon the people of God. And yet, instead of responding to that with fidelity and with love, their hearts were far away. They had all but abandoned God and paid only lip service to worship. Even Isaiah, the king, it says in, in the book of Kings that he was one of those who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He began very well. And yet at the height of his success, he fell prey himself to pride. He went into the temple to burn incense there which was a duty reserved for the priest alone according to the law of God, and God struck him with leprosy. And he carried that until his death. His downfall was indicative, I believe, for Isaiah, for the time and for the, the nation as a whole. In chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah said this, he appealed to them saying, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But in prosperity, the truth is that God had stopped being very real to them. They had descended, as one commentator says, into a corporate ethos of complacency. Isaiah 5, verse 30, the verse just prior to chapter 6, Isaiah said, If one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The lamps are going out all across the land, and they would not be lit again for this generation. It is into this context, into this moment that Isaiah receives this life-altering call and how we see this, this commitment that he makes. This year has been an eventful year, has it not? COVID-19 has disrupted our lives. It has disrupted the life of this church. It's disrupted our meeting together, the ministries that we perform. It has had an effect on so many hearts. Maybe you're here today and your hands are drooping, your heart is heavy. Maybe your heart is more divided today than it has ever been before. My hope in this series and going up to Christmas in the book of Isaiah is that we would be able to have a reorientation of our focus and 
hopefully a renewal in our commitment as well. Each week leading up to Christmas, Isaiah is going to bring a new invitation to the church. And this week, the invitation is to come and behold, to see what Isaiah saw. There are four things that I want us to see from this text this week. Number one, the big vision that Isaiah had for the holiness of God. Number two, his deep self-awareness. Number three, in a, a profound experience of God's grace. And finally, number four, a willingness in Isaiah to serve, to spend his life in service, no matter what the cost would be. Let's look, number one, a big vision of the holiness of God. In verses one to four. This last weekend, I was privileged <clears throat> sorry, to be able to sit in an missions committee end-of-year planning meeting. And uh, Andrew, one of the elders at the church, led us in devotions in this meeting, and he, he read from Kevin Roy's book on the, the revival that took place in South Africa in the 19th century. And it was a great encouragement to me. The emphasis was placed on, the challenge was given, do we hope for revival still? In the middle of this context, do we pray for revival to happen? And yet as he was reading, what struck me is I've read about revivals. I hadn't read much about this one before, but I've read about revivals and they all sound the same. The same thing happens every single time that revival takes a nation or a people. There's a corporate sense of the holiness of God. People see it. And they respond in repentance, in desperate times of prayer, in confession of their sins to one another. And yet all the revivals that I've read about, all of these experiences that we read about must be only a a tiny measure of what Isaiah experienced this day. In verse 1, he says, The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Imagine seeing that. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The earthly king lay dying, but the heavenly king was reigning, ruling. Isaiah sees this as he walks into the temple one day. The temple is the locus of God's majestic presence among his people. It was meant to be a symbol of an ultimate reality that is happening right now in heaven. That symbol had grown so dim in, in the life of Judah. They had forgotten. They were failing to see it. And, and one day as Isaiah walks into the temple, that ultimate reality breaks through into his story, into his situation. He would never be the same again. At her coronation, Queen Elizabeth had a regal dress, a, a royal robe, this gown that It had a train that was 36 feet long. You can go and see photos of that coronation. And it took six um, special maids of honor walking behind her to carry that train. Well, in this picture in Isaiah, we see the earthly temple filled with the train of God's robe, saying that the grandeur and the splendor of this king is too much even for the temple. The temple has no hope of containing that glory. 
In verse 2, he says, Above him, this king, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. The word seraphim is a, it's a literal, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word. That's the Hebrew word, seraphim. And it means most likely burning ones. These are perfectly sinless, holy flames of angels. And yet they are completely humbled before this king. R.C. Sproul points this out. He says, when, when God creates creatures, he makes them suitable for their environment. Fish are made with, skill, uh, with scales and with gills so that they can survive underwater. Birds have hollow bones and wings that are suitable for flight. And God made these seraphim to be able to survive in his presence. They only needed two wings to fly. With two wings, they had to cover their faces. These perfectly sinless angels were not worthy even to look upon this king. With two wings, they covered themselves, their feet. I believe a symbol of their creatureliness. You know, when Moses was in the, the land of Midian, he received a call from the Lord. And God appeared to him in the form of a burning bush. And what did God say there? He said, take off your sandals because the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. If that desert, that desert ground was made holy by the presence of the Lord, how much more holy is not heaven in, in God's presence now? Well, more, more telling, I believe, than the anatomy of these seraphim is their message. In verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. You know, 800 years after this event, someone else would have a similar experience. John would see into the throne room of heaven, and there he would see angels with six wings, and what were they crying then? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It seems as if they were created for a singular purpose to cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is this King. Sometime before the universe was created, they were given beginning to sing this threefold holy. And I, I suspect when we see them, when we see him one day, they will still be there, engaged in this ministry. The Hebrew language uses repetition to explain uh, su superlative or the totality of something. So in Genesis 14 verse 10, we see uh, the, the phrase pits, pits in the Hebrew language. And that just means the land is filled with pits. In 2 Kings 25.15, Gold, gold means pure gold. So J. Alec Mocha, the commentator, explains here, he says, holiness is supremely the truth about God. And His holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a superlative has to be invented to the third degree in order to express it. He is holy. He is greater. He is other. He is separate. He is transcendent so far above all creatures in every conceivable respect. John Piper says this. He says, when we say God 
is holy, we're saying God is God. The very Godness of God means that he is separate from all that is not God. So A.W. Tozer says, We must not think of God as the highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub then to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence. But that is not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of the word. Forever God stands apart, in light unapproachable. He is as high above the archangel as above the caterpillar. For the gulf, for the gulf that separates the archangel from caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. He is transcendent. And yet we see here he is also imminent. He's not aloof. He's not a distant God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Do you know it? Can you see it? Is, if the earth is filled with your glory, is your life filled with his glory? Do you know how you would know that? Fear. To experience the truth of the holiness of God means to be confronted by absolute moral purity. Alec Macha says, when people fear before God, it is not the consciousness of humanity in the presence of divine power, but the consciousness of sin in the presence of moral purity. What happens when the glory of God touches the earth? In verse 4, we see the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is not in what we call a safe space at the moment. I think that really is a big problem in the church. We think that we are in a safe space and our Christianity has become a little too safe. Now in the, this year and all the fear that has been developed because of COVID-19, COVID it should be COVID-20, 29. Yeah. In light of all the fear that has been developed this year, have we as the people of God forgotten the fear of the Lord? Are we spiritually complacent today? R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, said this, When God appeared in the temple, the doors and the threshold were moved. The inert matter of doorposts the inanimate threshold, the wood and metal that could neither hear nor speak had the good sense to be moved by the holiness of God. When was the last time that you were moved, that you were shaken by the holiness of God? Well, how does Isaiah respond to what he has seen? Let's look at number two, a deep self-awareness. Isaiah is a righteous man. By anyone's standard, he is a good man. He is a prophet of the Lord. He is not flattered by being granted admission into the presence of God. This is not a time of rejoicing for him. 
He does not pat himself on the back and pride himself in how he got to this place. Isaiah is devastated. He sees the glory of God and he realizes that he doesn't even deserve to live in this God's universe. Do you understand the God that we are talking about today? Do you know who you are coming before today? This is the God who said to Moses when Moses asked, can I just see your glory? He said to him, no man can see me and live. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is not, by the way, the first time that we see the word woe in the book of Isaiah. This is a common prophetic word. And we've seen Isaiah use it before already to denounce the sin of the people of God. He sees God and he pronounces the prophetic woe upon himself. I am lost. The NIV says ruined. The King James Version undone. I like that. He is coming apart at the seams. The root of that word can mean silence and not the the peaceful silence, like when your children finally go to sleep. This is the silence that follows death or disaster. When the tsunami hits the town and levels everything, that's the silence we're talking about here. He says, I am finished. When lepers in biblical times would come into crowded areas, for whatever reason they had to break their uh, mandatory isolation, they would have to cry out in the streets, unclean, unclean. And that is the same word we see here. I am a man of unclean lips. He sees God and he knows I am a moral leper. He is the spokesman of Yahweh, the prophet of God, and yet he interrupts this, this heavenly scene where the seraphim are worshiping God, but they are averting their eyes. Sinless angels, unworthy to look upon him. They are covering themselves. They're not worthy for him to look upon them. They are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah knows in this moment that there is not one word that he has ever uttered that is pure enough for this king. Not one praise even ever given that was fitting for him. Have you ever heard the phrase, journey of self-discovery? We hear it a lot in Hollywood. Get away from the distractions of life, from your responsibilities, from those external expectations. Have some time to look into yourself, to find yourself. If you want to find yourself, looking in yourself is a terrible place to start. You know where the real journey of self-discovery begins? It begins here, by seeing the holiness of God. When you are shaken by the holiness of God, you see yourself 
truly only when you see yourself in the light of the glory of God. And this is the first time that, ever, that Isaiah ever actually truly sees himself. And what he doesn't do is what we love to do. We love to compare. I'm a little bit better than Shaul. I'm okay. I'm a little holier than Brahm. I'm all right. When he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, he's not separating himself from them. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. We all together are on the same boat. Commentator Barry Webb said, It is remarkable to see the prophet identify himself so completely with those whose sins he has been denouncing in the previous chapters. But in the presence of God, degrees of sin become irrelevant. It is the holiness of God which reveals to us our true condition, not comparison with others. When you've been confronted by this holiness, as Jerry Bridges calls it, the the majestic purity or the pure majesty of God, it puts pay to comparisons. It puts pay to self-justification. It puts pay to the, the indulgent grandfather view of God who might sweep sin under the rug. It puts pay to a view of grace that says it's his, his chillness, his cutting us slack because, hey, we're all human, Right? Please, if you're sitting here today, don't be under the delusion that sin is not a serious thing in the eyes of the Lord. Habakkuk 1 verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And the sign that you have met with this God is that you think differently about sin. You cannot be a Christian and be blasé, comfortable, happy in your sin. Your goal begins to change. Be holy as I am holy. It is not a shackle over your life. It is your prayer. It is your request, your plea. Help me. It was right for Isaiah to fear. For this should have been his end. And yet, number three, we see a profound experience of God's grace. Look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, pause for a second there. Can there be anything more terrifying at this point in the story than having one of these burning ones flying at you with this hot coal that he's carrying? But rather than be incinerated in that moment, verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. He is not destroyed. This is not his end. And more than that, his guilt is gone. But how? How? This is not the God who sweeps sin under the rug. Notice, God does not say to him, no, you have nothing to fear. He does not say to him, don't worry, forget about it. Isaiah's estimation is right. But having seen the radiant and resplendent glory of the Lord in his holiness, he now experiences 
the grace of a good king as his unclean lips are made actually clean in God's presence. What does this look forward to? Why a burning coal? Commentators suggest, you know, coming from the altar, this was the the altar in the temple that had to keep burning perpetually. They were to stoke this fire perpetually because they weren't the ones who lit it. God initially lit this fire. They just had to keep it going. So this altar represents a holy God who is who accepts and is satisfied by the sacrifice of blood. It symbolizes his provision made for sin. This live coal touching the lips of Isaiah encapsulates the story of the Bible, the biblical gospel. It encapsulates the idea of substitution. This act of God in sending the seraphim to touch his lips looks forward to another act of God. And as the seraphim did the bidding of the Lord in bringing atonement to Isaiah, the Son of God did the bidding of our God, the Father, by leaving the throne of heaven and coming, coming to the earth to make atonement for our sin. This picture in Isaiah ought to make us feel the awe and the wonder that I believe John felt when he wrote when he remembered the words of Jesus in John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world can you imagine that but in order that the world might be saved through him this is what happens When you see a holy God, this understanding of a holy God who will not tolerate sin and yet it's coupled with an experience of grace. The holy God who cannot look upon sin took our sin upon himself. He became sin for us. When you know this truth, it creates what we see. Finally, in number four, an unconditional offer. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So often when this text is preached, it's a natural stopping point in this verse. There's a lot of meat in this passage and it's a good place to stop. What happens when you, when you see this God who is both terrifyingly holy and yet lovingly gracious as well. When you see him and he says, who will go for us? Is there any other response but here am I, send me? But I, I remember hearing this passage and they would end at, that, at this verse as a young person at youth camps in various places. This is a famous chapter. I would hear this preached and with eagerness as the call was given, I would lay my here am I on the table. God send me. And yet looking back, I know that it is always given, has been given with terms and conditions and reservations. God send me. Here's my dream and bless my dream. But sometimes crying out, 
I didn't sign up for this, God. I want to follow this passage through to the end because I believe it's important for the life of this church. It's important for our situation right now. This passage takes an unwelcome turn in verse 9. The Bible doesn't always say what you think it should say. When God calls you and sends you, He doesn't always send you where you want to be sent. What is the ministry that Isaiah is called to here? A successful preaching ministry? His books lining the shelves of come? The Christian bookstores? With the respect of his peers? And God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. If God was calling today to this ministry, anybody putting up their hands for that? Isaiah's preaching would be used of God, but not in the way that any preacher hopes that it would be used. Not as an instrument of grace, in his generation, but as an instrument of hardening and judgment. This is how the gospel works. You need to understand this. The gospel is a means of grace, but it is also a means of hardening. The Puritan said the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks of his ministry as being the aroma of Christ. He uses this illustration of a triumphal procession. When a conquering army would come into a city and defeat that city, they would have a parade, a victory parade. And priests would be walking in their wake, burning incense in this parade. And that smell would mean different things to different people. To the victorious, it was a smell of victory and life but to the conquered, a smell of death. And so Paul says in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? There is a heaviness to any ministry of preaching when you're not sure which way it's going to go. Will God use your message to save? Or will He use it? Will it be rejected and become a means of hardening? And just by the way, let me make it clear to you that where you are sitting right now is a dangerous place to be. You're in a dangerous situation if you can sit in the church and think and feel like you can hold the gospel at arm's length. If you think that you can be here and be unaffected by the Word of God. When the Word of God is read, when it is preached, you end up a little bit closer to Jesus or a little bit further away. So which is it? Dangerous is the heart that believes that obedience can be delayed. Isaiah was assured that the nation of Judah would not listen to his message. 
he would be God's instrument of judgment. But he didn't withdraw his offer. We see Isaiah pour out his life because of the vision that he has received. Having seen the holiness of God, what else would he have to fear? And having met this good and gracious king, what good is there apart from service to him? His heart has forever been transformed by the gospel. His situation is that of Moses. Moses had a similar experience. He saw the back of God's glory and later on, the Lord speaking to Moses says, I am frustrated with this people. They are a stubborn and rebellious people. And so Moses is given an offer. God says, go, go into the land. I will send my angel before you. You will experience success in all of your endeavors. He will fight for you. You will be victorious in battle. You'll receive the land flowing with milk and honey. Only I cannot go with you or I might kill them on the way. Moses intercedes. He says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from this place. That's Moses' heart. I would rather die in the desert than be there without you. I'm not moving if you don't come with me. I'm excited for the few weeks that we're going to have in this book of Isaiah. I think it is relevant to our times. Isaiah is a prophet of doom. You see it throughout the book of Isaiah. And yet what we see as well always is this this hook of hope. And that is what we need right now. We need this hope. In verse 11, knowing what his ministry will entail, he asks the question, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I'm not, I'm not backing out, but how long? That is a, a good question. It's better than my question. My question always is why? Why would you call me to this? Why would you let this happen? Explain your process to me, God. Let me weigh in on it with my wisdom. When you see the holiness of God, you know that you don't need the why. But how long? That's a prophet's question. That's a watchman's question. Standing on the wall in the early hours of the morning, looking out into pitch blackness, waiting for the sun to rise. How long, O Lord? How long until hope arises? We see it even in this passage, in this ending, doom and still hope. Verse 11 to 13, God answers the question, how long? Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And then we see this last line, The holy seed is its stump. It's not the last time that we're going to see the stump in the book of Isaiah. And I don't want to spoil the surprise. We're going to come back to it next week in Isaiah chapter 11, this holy seed, this tiny remnant. No matter what else happens in this book, a remnant always remains. So for now, I just want to close with this. 
and give you this challenge. This year has exacted a, a, a great toll on many of our lives. It has exacted a great toll even on the life of this church. And maybe you are here today and you are feeling tired and fatigued. This season is tough. This next season is going to be tough. It's certainly going to be difficult as we as a church try to rebuild in the year to come. So I want to ask you this question. Are there conditions to your, your here am I, terms and conditions? Are there reservations? Or can we place it on the table without reservation? Here am I, God, send me, use me. As we pick up, pick up the pieces of this year together, as we come together, we're going to meet because we want to see the holiness of God. We need to see Him together. We need to experience the mercy of God and we're going to meet to experience that grace. And we as a church will not be driven to despair, but we will say we are not backing out. You are worth it. Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Lord, I do feel hypocritical, Father, to talk about your holiness, to call other people to look upon it, to be changed by it. When I know I don't even have the slightest understanding of it, you are holy, and we need to see you. Help us to be shaken by your holiness. Help us as a church to be shaken by the desire to know and see you and to be used by you. We stand before you asking that you would transform our, our hearts by being able to behold what Isaiah saw and that you would use us in this community, Father. We will be faithful whatever it means. We will be faithful if our ministry is not received. But God, we ask that it would be received in this next season. We ask for conversions in our community, for changed hearts, for life and for vibrancy. We ask that Jesus' name would be made great as we seek to be holy as you are holy. We pray this all in his name. Amen.